Uh, Paul gave a testimony of gratitude, a testimony of gratitude for Christ working in his life. You remember that? We'll just touch on that in just a moment. Tonight, there's a testimony that Paul gives of his, of his wickedness before coming to Christ. Can you imagine sitting down with a pulpit committee? Had you been Paul? Could you imagine sitting down with a pulpit committee, five men, and they've been praying for a pastor, and somebody's recommended Paul come preach to him one Lord's Day, and they say, look, would you meet with us in the Sunday school room around back, or would you step to the church office, or would you, uh, would you go to the fellowship, Paul? We want to ask you some questions. We want you to start with your conversion. Tell us what you were prior to being saved. And him say, well, I was a blasphemer, and everybody knew it. I was a persecutor, and everybody knew it. And I struck violence in the hearts of people and exercised violence upon God's people prior to being saved. But he's the man for the job. Isn't that amazing what God can do in a life? He did it with Paul, did it for Paul. And, of course, there's a testimony of God's witness through Paul's life, verses 16 and 17. Just a very quick reminder, Paul's testimony of gratitude for what the Lord's done in his life there was Paul's profound gratitude in verse number 12. He, he always shows gratitude for his life and then for his calling. For his life, Paul can't be anybody but Paul. When these preachers come through our church, when they have been through our church, I don't try to make them be anybody that, Brother Lonnie, you've been in this a long time. The last thing I need to try to do is play the Holy Ghost. And some of these men that's, that's coming on, the last thing I need to do is play the Holy Ghost in his life. And I'm going to be his pastor. If he asks me a question, I'm going to tell him. If I see him getting off in left field somewhere, I haven't. I feel like I owe it to him as his pastor to tell him. Same with Brother Hunter. But um, Paul was thankful for his life. He was thankful for his calling upon his life. Then we talked about Christ's abundant grace. Paul's salvation was brought into focus in that it's full and free. And it stood in contrast to the false teachers that had infiltrated the church at Ephesus. And then there's Christ's uh, Christ sufficient gift. He says, this is a faithful saying, worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He said, of whom, let me tell you what he didn't say. He didn't say, of whom I was chief. It's not what he said. Now, we all talk about what we used to do, what we used to be, where we used to be heading to. Eternal, eternally speaking. Paul didn't say that. He said, of whom I am, present tense, I am chief. And, of course, we tried to point out three things that practically, uh, I think we can, we can certainly validate with the Bible. But when he, when, he, uh, when he uses this faithful saying, the first of several that's used only in the pastoral epistles, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into to the world to save sinners of whom I am chief of sinners. Is, that's literally what he's saying. There's two or three emphases we gave you. That's the mark of a man who knows of his own sinfulness. Yet he knows of Christ's sinlessness. It took the sinless sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ to die for sinners. It took the substitutionary death of Christ to atone, to appease the Father. The wrath of God's been satisfied, and we're grateful for that. He paid the debt that we could not pay. And then secondly, when he writes, of whom I am chief, it's the mark of a man who knows 
keenly aware of his dependence upon God, then it's a mark of humility. If you were saved in 1972, there's some things ought to be very pronounced in your life. You've come this far in life. If you were saved in 1995 or you were saved in 2010, whenever, there ought to be a progression of development in your life, and one area of that progression ought to be in humility. Paul said, of whom I am chief. I say it so often around here, but he knew God owed him nothing. So Paul's testimony of gratitude for Christ working in his life. Notice with me. Notice with me. We'll spend just a few minutes with verse 13. And I want to, uh, as we begin looking at this verse, I want to go back uh, into Philippians 3 and note something here in just a moment. Notice, let's read verse 13 again. There's Paul's testimony of wickedness. He didn't sugarcoat it, did he? He didn't make it more palatable. Verse 13, his testimony of wickedness before knowing Christ. He said, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, but, thank God for that but, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Now, this is what the world saw when they looked upon Paul pre-conversion. There's what Paul was prior to conversion. And then there is what God extended to Paul at conversion. First of all, notice with me back. Hold your place here. Mark your Bible there in 1 Timothy chapter number 1. If you'll turn to the left, uh, maybe 8 or 10 pages in your Bible, look at Philippians chapter number 3 with me, verses 4 to 6. I want to just mention, just remind us of, of what the world saw Paul to be, the Jewish world saw Paul to be prior to his conversion to Christ. There's a couple of items that really stand out. Really, what's listed here is going to fall under two headings. Paul's going to give us his pedigree, number one, as a Jew, a Jewish man. And number two, he's going to talk to us about the passion he had and what he did. Paul was a religious man. He was passionate about it. Um, Perhaps Gamaliel's best student. Uh, He had given himself to Judaism. And the teachings, the oral traditions, and the teachings of the law, he minded it all to the straightest, uh, strictest sort. Look at verses 4 through 6, Philippians 3. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man uh, thinketh that he hath whereof, he, he might trust in the flesh, I am more. In other words, he says, if anybody could boast in the flesh as a Jewish man, I can make a boast. He said, I could boast long and I could boast loud. That's what he's saying in essence. Watch this. As he gives this list in verses 5 and 6, he writes, circumcised the eighth day. You notice the comma of the stock of Israel, comma. Now, what's found in our Bible is what scholars call polysyndetans. It's our conjunctive words. It's and, but, whereof, therefore. It's conjunctive words. It's also, um, it's also our colons, our semicolons, um, Uh, our commas, our period, uh, at the end of a sentence. And what that is given for is a pause. So if we were reading in our daily Bible reading, if we read these first two phrases in verse 5, the Holy Spirit intended that we read it like this, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. And Hebrew of the Hebrews. That's his pedigree. Watch his passion. He says it's touching the law. 
Pharisee. Concerning zeal, persecuting his church. Touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. He said, you couldn't point a finger at me and find fault. Morally, he was clean as a hound's too. Of course, he goes on to say, we're not looking at this tonight, verse number 7, but what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. And certainly, certainly we all ought to be that way. My life was in a clean life before I come to Christ. Um, um, I belonged to the same family before I came to Christ that Paul did. Paul didn't belong to the family of God. We're not all God's children. I belonged to uh, Satan's family prior to being saved. You remember what Jesus said to a group of Jews uh, one day? He said, you're your father the devil, and the lust of your father you will do. And so he distinctly let us know there were, there were two families, spiritually speaking. And prior to being saved, though Paul was religious, had a pedigree, and had a lot of zeal about what he did, he still was a lost man. He thought he was doing God a favor. As a matter of fact, he wants to put to death and put in prison and bring harm to anybody who does not believe in what he's been taught religiously. Religion to take you to hell, friend. That's not the message tonight, but you need to be mindful of that. Notice Paul's uh, pedigree. Here he, he lets us know he's a Jew. He was a Jew of the noblest sort, of the purest sort, to the highest standards. He's going to make four statements here. Um, And he would have been admired by any serious-minded Jew of his day. When he writes in verse number 5, circumcised the eighth day, he comes out of the gate with his pedigree loaded for bear. He makes this statement. Uh, He serves notice on these Judaizers that he'd been born into a home that honored Old Testament scriptures. His parents were Hebrews. They were Jews. And they followed. His mama followed. His daddy followed. The strictest letter of the law. Leviticus 20, or excuse me, Leviticus 12, verse number 3, prescribed that a Jewish male was to be circumcised the eighth day after his birth. Paul was a Jew. He was not a convert to Judaism. He was born a Jew. He was not a Gentile proselyte. He was a Jew. In his pedigree, he's a Jew. Secondly, he writes here, of the stock of Israel, of the stock, in other words, of the nation of Israel. Israel was the name that uh, given to Jacob after Jacob wrestled with the angel of the Lord, who probably was a pre-incarnate theophany or Christophany. It's probably Christ that he wrestled with through the night. And you remember he said to the Lord, he said to him, he said, he said, uh, or the Lord said to him, uh, he said to the Lord, he said, turn me loose. And uh, no, the, the Lord said to him, said, turn me loose. And uh, uh, Jacob said to the Lord, and we'll get it out after a while. Jacob said, I'm not turning you loose until you bless me. And you remember the Lord touched the hollow of his thigh, thigh, and he halted upon it till his dying day. And God renamed him from Jacob, which means trickster, schemester, supplanter, to Israel, which means prince. And God's chosen race of people are called by that name unto this day. So he says of the stock of Israel. He's rehearsing here the purity of his Jewish pedigree of the stock of of Israel. Abraham had a number of descendants, of course, and a number of his descendants were not recipients of the covenants of promise. You remember that. The Ishmaelites were descendants of Abraham through his relationship with Agar. But Ishmael was not the son of promise. He was not the son of the covenant. 
And then you will remember the Edomites. They could trace their ancestry back to Abraham through Isaac, then down through Esau. But they're not the people of the covenant of promise. Um, Esau was the founder of the Edomite nation. And again, he could trace his descent back to Abraham, but the covenant didn't include him. It came through Isaac and through Jacob. And so what Paul's doing here is stressing his absolute purity of his Jewish pedigree. Notice with me, we'll go through the rest of these in a hurry. He says of the tribe of Benjamin. To say he was of the tribe of Benjamin would make him Hebrew aristocracy of some sort. Um, the elite tribe of Israel be kind of like... Uh, Kind of like being in Owen down in Springville, Mississippi. Amen? Then he says in Hebrew of the Hebrews. Then he goes on. He lists his passion. You'll be turning back to 1 Timothy chapter number 1. We'll be there here in just a few seconds. Paul's passion, just to remind you of what we read, he said it's touching the law of Pharisee. A Pharisee. They were the religious elites among the Jews in Paul's day. And um, mind you, all their adherences. Uh, all of their disciplines were man-made. Then he went on to say over there in that passage in verse 6 of Philippians 3, concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Persecuted the church. It's amazing how God would use him, isn't he, after he was saved. You remember after he was saved, Ananias didn't even want to go lay hands on him. There was fear of Saul of Tarsus. Can you imagine a man coming into this church one Lord's Day or Wednesday night or in the middle of the Bible conference? And pulling people out and persecuting them. Putting them in the county jail. Have letters of authority stamped by the state of Mississippi. And he had every right to do so. Drag one of our preachers out and stone him. And the men that picked up stones to stone him. Uh, they take their coats off and lay them at that man's feet. Can you imagine then that man saying that he's been saved? And after saying he's been saved, he wants to come into your church and preach. And he put your mother to death or your father in prison or your father to death. You understand why he needed a Barnabas, don't you? Barnabas played the part only Barnabas can play. And thank God he did. He was a friend. He was a friend. When Paul needed a friend after conversion, Barnabas was that friend. You keep that in mind when someone is saved, especially if they've lived out here in this world. And if somebody says, well, I wonder if it's real, you just tell them, let's wait on God and see. I remember after I was saved, it was supposed to wear off. I remember that. I had a buddy of mine. Uh, he said he understood I was in trouble. And I said, I don't understand. And he said, well, I hear they've got you going to church now. Another buddy of mine got in some trouble. And his uh, junior year, he had to go to basic training. And then when he graduated high school, after his senior year, he had to go take his AIT. Uh, is it AIT? I believe it is. And uh, is that what it is? Am I right there, Brother Chris? And uh, it was to keep him out of reform school. And for some reason, my buddy thought, well, he's in trouble again. I said, for the first time in my life, I'm not in trouble. For the first time in my life, I'm not in trouble. And I don't look over my shoulder when I go to town. And I'm grateful for that. You never know where God's going to bring someone from. And when God saves a soul, whether it be at 1.30 uh, on the night, uh, and they couldn't get out, and God made a way in, or if it be somebody over here in the jail, house on a Sunday afternoon service and some of these churches around here go in up there and preach the gospel rejoice in the fact that God has saved another soul do what you can to encourage them in the Lord 
But he went on to say, touching the righteousness which is in the law blameless. I spent more time here uh, than I meant to. But there's no question about it. Paul was religious. He was devout. Not just devoted. He's devout. He's willing to die for what he believes, but he's wrong. He is wrong. Notice with me verse number 13. Let's, let's read verse 13 again. The Bible says, who is before a blasphemer? Now, right in the same context, watch this verse. Who is before a blasphemer? He said, I was before a blasphemer. Who was before a persecutor? Before, keep that in mind. Who was before injurious? But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. This is what the church experienced at the hands of Saul of Tarsus prior to his conversion. Paul was destructive to many believers. Many churches he proved to be a destructive force. Here we see Paul in his sin, his practice of sin against Christ's church. Of course, you will remember on the road to Damascus when he saved, you remember what Jesus Ask him, he said, Saul, Saul. He's one of seven individuals to receive a double call in Scripture. He said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? He said, who art thou, Lord? He said, you know who I am. He said, it's hard for thee to kick against the pricks, isn't it? And, of course, he was saved there on the Damascus Road. But to take up arms against the church and God's people, to take up arms against Christ. Notice with me, we're going to go start working our way through this here in just a moment. But notice with me one last time before we go through this verse, what Paul lists in verse number 13, he did before conversion. You will never find anybody after conversion in all the Word of God acting like Paul acted before conversion. Keep that in mind. And keep in mind also we're talking about Paul's testimony of wickedness prior to his conversion. If you want to... Read with me, Acts chapter 22. I'm going to read a couple of other verses in the book of Acts here in a couple of minutes. Acts chapter number 22. Here he gives testimony of what he did in persecuting believers. Acts chapter number 22, verses 1 through 4. Listen to these verses. The Apostle Paul in Acts 22, verses 1 through 4. He says, Men, brethren, and fathers, hear ye my defense, which I make now unto you. And when they heard that he spake in the Hebrew tongue to them... They kept the more silence, and he saith, I am verily a man which am a Jew, born in Tarsus, a city of Cilicia, yet brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, and taught according to the perfect manner of the law of the fathers, and was zealous toward God as ye all are today, this day. Watch what he says in verse 4. And I persecuted this way unto death, binding and delivering into prisons, both men and women. You see where God brought him from. He did this prior to conversion. Now notice with me, I want you to notice his wickedness uh, is manifested in three areas of his life. Number one, through his lips, he says, who before was a blasphemer. Number two, it is seen in his life. He said, who before was a persecutor. That's how I was known. And then his wickedness was expressed through his labors. He said, I injured people. I did it on purpose. I meant to injure people. If you want to follow uh, another passage from the book of Acts, Acts chapter 26, if you want to put your finger there or put your Bible ribbon there. Uh, first of all, Paul's wickedness was uttered through his lips. He said, who 
was before a blasphemer. Again, Paul says, I did this prior to being saved. He was guilty of the sin of blasphemy. He was a Christ denier, and he was outspoken about it. He was bold about it. Look as he stands before King Agrippa in Acts 26, verses 9 through 11. Not only was he a Christ denier, but those who he could, he forced to be a denier of Christ as well. Watch this. Acts 26, 9 through 11. I verily thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, which thing I also did in Jerusalem. And many of the saints did I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priest. And when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them. Watch this. And I punished them oft in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. I put pressure on them to blaspheme. I threatened their lives and demanded they renounce their faith in Christ. That's what he's saying. And being exceeding, exceedingly, he says, mad against them, I persecuted them to strange cities. That means foreign cities he would not have regularly occupied and visited. He said, I went out of bounds searching for this sort, searching for those who were in the way. That's what he said. He said, I blasphemed. Paul was a blasphemer of Jesus Christ. It's a description of his life prior to being saved. This word blasphemy is very revealing. Blasphemy comes from the word blasphemia. means to speak irreverently about God or any matter of God. Any matter of God. The word blasphemy, generally speaking, it is a, it is a sin of the speech, of your speech. And uh, this word blasphemia. It also can encompass a broad range of meaning. It means any type of demeaning of God, His Word, His work, His people. Any type of debasing of God, His Word, His work, His people. To blaspheme means to offer derogatory comments toward God, His Word, His work, His people. The word blasphemia, it can mean nasty comments, shameful utterances, ugly speech, anything that is designed to humiliate. Anyone or it's any type of action or speech that would berate God, his work, his word, and his people. Blasphemy. Blasphemy. He said, I did it. He said, I did it. But I was ignorant of what I did. I didn't know that I didn't know. I didn't know what I didn't know. He was as radical Muslims in our day who will hunt down and put to death what they consider to be the infidel. And I'm looking at everybody here tonight. Everybody, if one of them came in tonight, they're hunting all of our heads. We're in their way. They think they're doing God a favor. Wouldn't bother them to roll up in here with a car bomb. Take himself out while he takes us out. Blasphemy. He said, I was a blasphemer. I did this prior to salvation. I mistreated. That's what he's saying. I berated. I slandered. I humiliated believers. Had no tolerance for them. Persecuted them. And did it with a vengeance. I wonder how many people he did hurt. I wonder how many he did hurt. He hurt a lot of them. 
He gives his testimony two or three times in Scripture of what he did. A number of scholars believe this is the thorn that was in Paul's side. I don't know that it was. We're not specifically told what the thorn was. I think the reason why we're not specifically told is because you can put your burden in there. And I can put my burden in there and find that God's grace is sufficient to bear the burdens we bear. And we will bear burdens, friend. Paul's wickedness was uttered through his lips. His lips. Paul's wickedness was seen in his life. He said, who was before a blasphemer? He said, and a persecutor. Verse number 13. Again, this is something that Paul did before conversion, never after conversion. Even on the day that Paul was saved, listen to what the Bible says in Acts 9, verses 1 and 2. And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, that went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, aren't you glad you're in the way? Whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. He was yet breathing threatenings and slaughter. That literally means murderous threats. He used his influence to persecute Christians. He was a persecutor of the early church. That word persecutor comes from the word dioko. means to pursue or to ardently follow after something until the object of pursuit is apprehended. It's literally the word for a hunter. A hunter that would follow a scent or follow a track of an animal and hunt him down and kill him. Can you imagine such? Paul was a persecutor of the early church. That word reveals just how aggressively and violently Paul sought down Christians. Paul's wickedness was uttered through his lips. His wickedness was seen in his life. His wickedness was expressed through his labors. Where the Bible says, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious. Once again, this is something that Paul says he did prior to conversion, never one time after. The word injurious comes from the word hubristes, if I'm saying this correctly, hubristes. It's a word that uh, indicates one who in pride and insolence, deliberately, contemptuously, mistreats people on purpose, mistreats people for their faith. I want to tell you something. We are mocked. You better know we are mocked. We are held in scorn. This, uh, to the higher sensibilities of a lot of men, the preaching of the gospel is foolishness. We're foolish people. Uh, men consider they know more than what the Word of God has to say. Now, they've piled it up, tried to burn the thing out, the Word of God, that is. They've torn it to shreds. Voltaire stood on his front lawn and said a year from now that Christianity and Christ uh, would be gone from the vocabulary of man. He's a, a rather noted French atheist. A year to the date that he made that boast and held that conference on his front lawn, the Geneva Bible Society bought his house and moved a printing press in and started, pre- started printing the Geneva Bible. By the way, our King James Bible was not the first Bible translated into the English language. It was the Geneva Bible. Now, we've been lied to about a little bit of this stuff. I'm a King James man. I'm going to stay with it. I'm going to die with it. But it was not the first English translation of the Word of God. It was the Geneva that was the first. But there are those who mock us tonight. 
They would do anything they could. Matter of fact, you let these progressives in our country have their way. And some of us will go to jail one of these days. I may not live to see it. I mean, Lynn McCord may live to see it. Hunter House may live to see it. Luke Wilder may live to see it. Ava Grace may live to see it. Little Noah Scott may live to see it. We are a spoiled nation that is almost in a post-Christian era. Everybody's been saved. Everybody has religion. A man can be on the road to hell today and he has no fear of God, no fear of dying or anything else. There's no fear of God. Matter of fact, I don't think we need a revival of shouting in our nation. I really don't. I think the revival we need is a revival of brokenness. People are going to hell and you and I don't even care about it. Blessed are they that mourn. But they shall be comforted. When's the last time you got in a service and there was real brokenness? I, you know, I'm going to close right here and we'll pick up and finish this section, our next look. And it'll be a couple of weeks after our Bible conference. Um, I've been in a few. I, I've been in a few. I've been in a few. I've not been in many. Now, let, let me say, I'm talking about services where there was a hush and there was a brokenness about, about the whole congregation. I've been in a few. I've been in a lot of services where, uh, and we may have some services next week. Who knows? We may not. I'm not advertising the shout. I ain't against it. I'm for it. This is the quietest world you're going to live in. I'm, so I'm for it. I've been in a bunch of services where I had to stop through the years. Let everything quiet down before I go back to preaching. I've been in a bunch of them like that. I'm not talking about thousands of them, but I've been in a bunch. I can't count them on these two hands. And I've been in a whole lot of services where other preachers were preaching, and they so much rejoicing and shouting, you couldn't hear him. He just kept on preaching. But I've been in just a few where God just broke everyone, just broke people. First time I was in a service like, like that, and um, it was in a Bible conference. Probably was 65 people there. I wasn't the pastor. I wasn't preaching. But uh, Ron Martin, uh, Ron was singing, and he sung about the second song, and he just quietly sat down. Tom Hayes was to preach. Before he sat down, Tom slipped in the altar over here and just got on his face. Everything Everything got real still. Probably as much as 10 to 12 minutes, probably. Probably. Uh, seemed like a lot longer. Probably was about 10 to 12 minutes. And um, occasionally one would get up and move to the altar. The pastor of the church got up behind the pulpit. He didn't know what to say. He didn't know what to do other than just be still preacher from the state of Louisiana about where Noah is in the congregation stood up and when he did the pastor looked at him as though don't you do something stupid 
You just got to be a pastor to get that. And that brother from Louisiana got to praying and broken. Asked God's forgiveness for so much. I've told you about, uh, and I'll close with this. I told you about, it's been a number of years ago. I was in Tippa County the first time it happened. It all happened in one year. It's in Tippa County the first time it happened. Um, it's the last night of revival services and... Uh, um, a young mother, there were three sets of pews in the church, um, each row extended about the depth of our sanctuary. A young lady sitting about the third row off the back, sitting by her husband and her children stood up. She had held, of all things, hard feelings toward a high school graduate, which was an athlete who had taken the time to coach her boys in summer ball. And he pulled her boys out one game to let some of the second stringers play and she was a little upset about it and held a grudge and come to church and wouldn't speak to it and she said you know God's been dealing with me over my grudge called the old boy's name he said on the left hand side probably 6'6 six, six. he and Cody Moore about the same height two sets of doors leading out of the sanctuary into the foyer he walks back that way Across and in that door and hug that lady. And then her husband stood up and said, you know, called his name, said, I'm sorry. We've talked about it. We've talked about it. We've talked about it. And that's how it lives in her heart and in mine. And I'm sorry. And after that, chairman of the deacon stood up in the middle row, about four, five rows back. His last name's Mooney. And he told Brother Lane Finley, his pastor, he said, uh, Brother Lane, he said, oh, you an apology. And Brother Lane knew what it was about. Held hard feelings against him. And he said, Preacher, you is right, and I was wrong. Went to Bethel Baptist Church about two months after that in Nettleton, Mississippi. I think Brother Jay Knight was there that night. I think he rode down with me. It's been a number of years ago. Brother Tommy Whaley, their church come over on Wednesday night. Bigby come over. There was more of them than was us. Brother Tommy Whaley was sitting right there. And uh, same thing. I didn't say what I got up was fixing to announce the text. And Brother Tommy was standing. He said, Preacher, before we go any farther. And he spoke to Rob Sargent, the song leader. And he said, Rob, I'm wrong. Would you forgive me? And Rob said, Preacher, you've been forgiven. And it went from there to people from Bethel. Husbands and wives. That's revival, friend. One revival that ought to have been extended, in my mind, Brother Ronnie Barefield was preaching it. It was either 93 or 94 around here at Friendship Baptist Church. If you know anything about the church back in those days, they run Jimmy Russell out of there. Some of them did. You say what you want to. I'd call some names. You know, I've talked about it two or three times through the years. If there ever was a meeting... It ought to have been extended into the second, third, or fourth week. Now, that was it. There were two professions of faith that week. One of them was his daughter. I don't know who the other one was, but I'm going to tell you what happened. I'm going to tell you what happened. All week long, there was people confessing sin, getting right with one another. Husbands and wives getting right with one another, daddies, and you name it. It was a sin-confessing revival. I remember it. Matter of fact, I got through. I was in the first pastor, and I got through on Wednesday night 
a little quicker than normal. And I said, if y'all excuse me, I'm going to leave. And I went straight back up there. The meeting went Sunday night through Thursday night. Any revival that you read about across uh, the last 200, 300 years, there's always been a lot of confessing of sin. Of course, ain't nobody ever done anything wrong in our day. Let's stand. Paul said, I was a blasphemer prior to being saved. I was a persecutor of the church, and I injured them. I went at them violently. But now, he said, if God can save me, he can save you. He said, I was the chief of sinners. Brother Johnny, dismiss us, please, sir.